Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today is Friday, July 16th, 2010. It is a Friday. That means it is call-in Friday. And before I even uh, do the housekeeping, the first thing I'm going to do to the audience is apologize. Yes, I am sorry Uh, to some of you, because last night I sent out an email saying, hey, look, I can't get out all the recordings that have come in over the last week. I need new call-in recordings so I have enough calls to do a show today. I'll do them first come, first serve. Great chance to get on the air. 67 of you called and left the message. Obviously, I can't do 67 calls. I am going to see keep them coming. I'm going to be going on vacation from sometime around the 27th uh, of July through about probably the 4th or 5th of August. And uh, I won't be able to do a lot of show stuff during that time because it's a vacation. So I'm going to try to knock out a few shows. So there won't be a show every day during that period, but there will be some shows during that period. Uh, so keep them coming, but I apologize if you called and thought your show calls going to be on the air. I did them exactly in the order that was received, and when I got enough for the show, I stopped, and I'm just going to keep going, and I'm going to work right through them and try to create a backlog of some pre-published shows for you guys while I'm gone. Uh, now, let's go ahead and knock out the housekeeping before we start taking your questions. Housekeeping item number one. Let's take care of our sponsors, folks. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the Survival Podcast is here Monday through Friday. Just about every week of the year. How many vacations does this guy really take? Not that many, because I love being here with you guys. Sponsor of the day number one, Western Botanicals. Um, the ultimate collection of herbals. Let me just put it to you that way. Uh, from the herbal preparations they have to the raw herbs, if you'd like to make your own. If it's an herb and it's legal in the United States and has practical use, they probably have it. And they have a lot of things that you'll have a hard time finding elsewhere, like for making topical skin uh, uh, ointments and things that are for, like, sore joints, uh, menthol crystals that are really cool uh, for making that type of preparations. Check out Western Botanicals. It's just one unique example of something they have that's kind of hard to find elsewhere. Uh, next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Um, very, very loyal sponsor. Been with us a very long time, folks. One of our first sponsors, uh, absolutely. I'd say I think he was actually our second person to step up and sponsor the show and did so for a year out of the gate back when the show was really new and not very proven yet. It only been around, I guess, about nine, ten months. He also supports us with the Members Brigade. Um, you know, Vic over there has a program called... Um, his uh, Discount Buyers Club. He sells that for $29. People pay for it every day because it gives you discounts for the rest of your life on his site. And if you're in our members brigade, you get that absolutely for free. That's a huge deal, man. So even if you're not in the brigade, uh, if you're going to buy something and he's the kind of guy that you know you need to buy from, buy from him, man. Just because look at the support this guy has been giving the show for that long. You know, pay back the sponsors who have been loyal to us. That means they're loyal to you as well, man. Uh, next up today, the gear shop. Check the gear shop out. We got a lot of new stuff coming. Siswell's working on a redesign of it. It's going to be a lot cooler for, right, let's say, uh, Gear Shop 2.0 when it comes out. Uh, but we got a lot of new cool stuff coming. So keep an eye on the gear shop and make sure that, uh, you know, if there's anything there that, that looks useful to you or you think maybe it'd make a good gift, you know, pick it up because I'll tell you what, it's not my really my uh, it's not really my profit center, folks. It's uh, Tiffany and Rich run that thing, and, and they uh, they take the majority out of it. But, you know, it's it's amazing the work they do. I see it as having the branded merchandise as a service to you guys because so many people ask for it. And uh, that's why I set them up kind of as their own operation to run that. And uh, they do a lot for us, man, not just in the gear shop, in the forums as well. Uh, they work tirelessly for, for not a lot of money. So remember, when you're spending a few bucks at the gear shop, you're not just helping me out. You're really helping them out. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade because that does help me out a lot, man. That's what really makes this show profitable. That's what makes me be able to do it for you as a full-time endeavor and put everything I do into it and do special shows like today. Obviously, we didn't do listener call-in shows when I was like, hey, this is Jack in a car. 
Uh, when it was Jack in a Car, I guess it was fun, it was unique, but I think the show's better now. Better audio quality, better material, better research, better background. That's because people support the show at 20 cents an episode. So if you think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, join the Member Support Brigade, and you'll get a great return of investment. Like I said, you'll get Vic's Discount Buyers Club for free, over $100 worth of free eBooks, discounts to 20 other vendors. It's about 20 videos by me only, and I constantly try to make that thing better every day. And with that, we'll go ahead and we'll get into the show. Let's go ahead and take the first call. I'm going to tell you something about this caller in advance. Her call's long. She called so long that she got cut off and called back and asked again, but... She sounded so nice, and she has a real problem, so I'm going to do what I can to help with it. I felt bad about the problem, so for the first time in my life, I've allowed somebody to break the rule and actually call back and finish up their call and splice them together for them. So here we go. See if you can even figure out where the splice point is. I'm getting pretty good at this editing stuff. Hey, Jack. Chrissy here from Wyoming. I'm calling you with my gardening woes and hoping you can give me some advice. I'm not a very experienced gardener. Last year was my first row one, but it was incredible. Beginner's luck, I guess. We rototilled and made rows. I tried companion planting with lots of flowers, so it was gorgeous. We had great soil and water, no bug issues. It was easy to maintain and yielded a ton of food, so I was hooked on gardening. Well, we moved and had to establish a new one. I've heard you talk about raised beds a lot and wanted to try them out, and you said grass was pretty easy to kill. So after reading Lee Reich's book, Weedless Gardening, I decided I wanted to go that route. My dad and husband were both pretty skeptical, but humored me nonetheless and helped me get it set up. We established about 1,000 square feet and followed the instructions to a T. We mowed existing vegetation to the ground, sprinkled fertilizer, covered it with four to eight layers of overlapping newspaper, built beds with compost and paths with mulch, all about four inches deep and separated with one-by-four boards. We fenced it off, and it was a beautiful thing. Well, for about two weeks. That's when the grass started popping up. But just a little at first, and I wasn't too concerned, still fairly confident in my decision. But we had a pretty cold spring and some issues getting water going, so planting got delayed a bit. And you can probably guess where I'm headed with this. I spent several hours pulling grass before I even had a single seed in the ground. I guess the native grasses are a little more resilient than long grass. So now it's mid-July. The situation has escalated. I spent hours making the entire thing look spotless, all to come back in three days and have most of my plants hidden in a new forest of unwanted grass. Add to that, continue dishes with water, most of the water I do with buckets or a hose from a 1,000-gallon tank on a trailer, and I lost about 90% of my transplants, either because I didn't harden them off properly or because the soil was too rich. I'm not sure. So a lot of things I had to restart from seed, and everything's about six weeks behind. So as great as last year's garden was, this one seems like a wreck. But the upside is I've got some awesome lettuce and spinach so far, a great tan, and I've been able to catch up on your podcast while I'm pulling weeds. So I'd really appreciate some advice on how to continue the season without it breaking my back and stealing too much more of my time, if that's even possible. And I'd also like to know what we did wrong and what to do for next year. It's like the grassy top layer is just relocating up into the beds. So would a fall cover crop crowd it out, or do we need to undo the beds and till everything in to break it up and start over? I can envision the snow melting next spring and the grass in the beds already tall enough to be mowed. I just don't know what to do, and I want gardening to become a joy again instead of a chore. Thanks for the show, Jack. Well, folks, how do you let somebody make a great call like that um, and uh, not answer that one, even though this is going to be a tough one to answer in a few ways? First of all, I think part of your problem, Chrissy, is that um, based on the fact that you're calling me from Wyoming, I'm going to assume that you're dealing with native prairie grasses. And um, that's a little bit different than dealing with uh, you know, a Bermuda grass lawn in the back of a suburban uh, uh, yard uh, or Raleigh St. Augustine or something like that. Those prairie grasses, the native grasses up there, when they've been established for a long time, get this, they can have root systems that go up to 12 feet or further down into the ground. If you watch Dirt the movie, which is pretty amazing, you'll, you'll learn more about what our native grasses were like and why, why it's so harmful that we've monocultured the entire thing from Wyoming through the Midwest back to the east and, and taken away the grass prairies like that. So that's, Probably the type of resilient grasses that you're dealing with. As for what you did wrong, you bought a book instead of listening to me, and I hate to put it that way, but in a way it's true. What I've always said when you're going to kill your grass is the laid down cardboard. And I don't think four layers of newspaper is really adequate for most grass, and it's certainly not adequate for the type of 
perennial grasses that you have that are our native grasses throughout the western United States. So I would have been having you go to like stores and pick up refrigerator boxes and stuff like that. And I would have had you lay down probably in your area twice what I would do one layer and maybe two layers where you're at. Um, and if you would have done that, I think you would have done a really good job at killing off the grass. Since you fertilized it um, and then put a whole bunch of compost and rich soil over top of it, uh, you've basically supercharged it now. So you've taken grass that can grow uh, in the middle of Wyoming's plains with no help from anyone, and you've given it a moisture-rich, nutrient-rich fertilized environment And uh, you try to stop it with four sheets of newspaper. So now your problem has escalated. I love the way you said that, by the way. And it's escalated for a, a variety of reasons. One, because of not using a significant barrier in the first place against something as resilient as native grasses. And two, because you've made the, the situation optimum for it. Uh, it's now got optimum growing conditions. So now we have to look at what we can do. My gut is, I don't know if this will work, but my gut is if you'll go to those beds um, and if you'll put down maybe two layers of uh, cardboard on top of them, uh, maybe you can kill that grass off. But, man, it's going to be hard now um, because they've kind of, they guarantee you they've kind of rooted into your bed as well, and they've still got that long root system going deep down into the soil. It's um, it's tough. I don't want to tell you you have to pull them apart and start over, but you might. And you might want to, in your situation, till before you, you lay down the, uh, the cardboard. You're in a different situation than the average backyard gardener. The average backyard gardener can kind of stake off what they want, throw down a couple boxes, and, and, and mulch over that. The other thing that I wonder... Um, it would have probably worked better if you would have done this project in the fall and kept it like that throughout the winter uh, into the spring and then planted in the spring. Now, you want to get a little bit radical, here's what you could do. Go to uh, a carpet supplier, if you can find a carpet supplier, uh, maybe a person that puts in carpet that has old rugs, get rug. Turn it upside down so that the, uh, the kind of nylon portion is sticking up Cover your beds with that. And when you plant your... Now, you're not going to be able to start seeds underneath there, but you can do cut little X holes and, and put in your, your, your seed links planted through there. Uh, that'll let water pass through, and that'll stop it. I, I just don't know how long you're going to have to hold it down now. Uh, it was already bad, and now it's worse. So I, I really wish maybe this was a question you would have asked in advance of doing it, because now I feel bad for you. Um, but that's your problem. You you just didn't use a sufficient barrier, and now the reason is you put it the situation is escalated is because you've given the grass optimum growing conditions. Um, the book you read, I, I'm not sure that the guy planned on people in your situation using newspaper to stop something like a, a native perennial. So uh, native perennial grass. So that's the best I can do for you. Um, And I'm sorry I can't do better, but one of the problems you're going to have is additionally is even if you stop it in the bed, you're going to have it kind of protruding around and coming up over your sidewalls and all. So it's uh, it's up to you where you go now, but if you just wanted to give it a shot, I would try that. As far as a cover crop, um, I don't know of anything aggressive enough to make it through the Wyoming fall that's going to choke out the type of grass situation you have. If you were in the south and it wasn't that bad, I would say maybe planting a, a, a buckwheat in the late summer and then after a buckwheat crop go into a vetch might work. It couldn't hurt, but you, you see what I'm saying? You've got a situation where you're better off with a physical blockade. Uh, again, either two layers of cardboard uh, with heavy mulch on top of it and just seal off the light. I mean, you're almost at a point now where if you want to grow anything for the rest of the year, pick one space and take the rest of it and just try to kill it. I, I hate to tell you that, but that's the only thing I can say in this one. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Rick from up here in northern Minnesota. And uh, I have a question for you, wondering if uh, you're aware of any place to either buy or make a uh, low-cost drip irrigation system. Love the show. Uh, keep up the great work. Thank you much. Bye. Well, it's going to sound like an oversimplification there, Rick, but I'm going to say Walmart. Um, drip irrigation equipment is pretty dead gone cheap. Um, most expensive component is really going to be kind of a multi, 
multi-channel uh, uh, valve so you can decide how many uh, legs of a system you're going to need based on your water pressure. If you go to somewhere that's a little more specialized, if you can find an informed person at Home Depot or Lowe's, they'll probably do a good job of helping you uh, determine how many legs or arms you need of your system. But you can kind of do it really through trial and error. As far as low cost, drip irrigation stuff is dirt cheap, man. The, the, you, basically, you have large transport hose that, that takes the water from wherever your source is to your distribution system. You've got distribution, uh, then you've got the small distribution tubing, and then you've got distribution tubing with, with little, little holes in it. And um, it snaps together like an erector set. And I mean, if you have a, a simple garden system and you were putting in maybe, let's say, six raised beds and you were putting drip irrigation into that, I can't see you spending more than maybe $50 to $75 to buy the app, you know, instead of like, you know, uh, coming up with some kind of substitute uh, to, uh, to put that in. Now, here's something. I, I haven't tried this yet, but I've been thinking about doing it for gardeners that use a standard dimension bed, let's say four foot or eight foot. I've been thinking about getting, you know, a piece of PVC pipe that is the, uh, the length of the bed and uh, taking uh, and putting a hose fitting on the opposite end and capping the other end and drilling a bunch of holes in it. And uh, not little drip irrigation holes. This would be more for you know pure watering. But then instead of going through your water, your garden with a hose or whatever, uh, and you know gar you know watering each section of it, you would just go and stick that across the the length of your bed, turn the water on, let it run for a while, maybe pick it up and move it over to the other side of the bed forward, uh, maybe two three times and let it run for a while, pick it up and go to the next bed, and that might be a really efficient, let's say, passive uh, uh, watering system. Uh, so there's kind of my uh, my idea for if you wanted to do something really simple, but you're going to have to manually go out there and move it instead of just turning the water on and setting the valves a certain way. But if you're going to do drip irrigation, I mean, you can buy the tubing for, it's like, I, I think the last time I looked at it, it was like five bucks for 50 feet of tubing. So, I mean, you know, that, that goes a long way. And uh, I do think you, I would try... My experience, if somebody's going to tell me I'm wrong, it's the other way around. My experience here locally has been the guys at Lowe's seem to be a little bit more informed and educated than the guys at Home Depot when you're asking for help on how to do things. The Home Depot guy almost around here, they chase you down the aisle asking if they can help you, but when you ask them, they don't really seem very knowledgeable. Now, I don't want to put Home Depot down. I'm talking about the two Home Depots that are within a few miles of my house. Uh, the Lowe's that's near here, when I go there and ask for help, if the guy I ask doesn't know, he's like, hold on, and they'll go get somebody who does. So that's just been my experience. But as far as being cheap with it, you can't get much cheaper than it already is. Go with off-the-shelf stuff that's designed for it. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Alan from the Los Angeles area. Um, first off, I really like your uh, five minutes with Jack on jacksburkler.com. That's really good, too. But I was wondering what I um, has to do with technology. Uh, I was wondering what you're going to do when you get out to your bug out location for high speed internet. Uh, that's always a concern with people like me who like to get out and live out more rural area, but the high speed internet is kind of a sticking point, especially if we want to get into businesses that deal with the internet. My sister has the uh, satellite uh, feed for internet, but the upload speed is terrible on that, and download speed isn't much better. And plus, they charge you quite a bit. So, I was just wondering what you're going to do. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the show. Bye-bye. Well, it is something that we've thought about quite a bit, and we're, for day-to-day -day use at home, we're going to have to break down and just pay uh, for the satellite and kind of the entry-level service, which isn't going to be cheap, but uh, we want good quality, reliable Internet at our location. And where we're at, especially due to the issues with uh, the mountainous terrain and any kind of line of sight to try to bring any kind of WiMAX or Motorola canopy-based solution in. They're just not going to do it in the area, especially for the low number of people that live up in our, in our little area. So we're either stuck with dial-up, which is going to blow out there beyond normal blowing because it's just so dadgone long of a, of, a, of a trip back on the copper to get to the central office. We're talking miles and miles and miles, folks. Uh, DSL is a, is a pipe dream on, on this type of distance. Uh, if I wanted to do something sophisticated like bring a T1 in out there, it would probably cost me some insane number that's uh, more money a month than I make in a year or something like that. So satellite will not be sufficient for uploading shows and, and for doing my business. So what we've decided, we looked at the cost of um, rental 
of office space in Hot Springs, which is a 20-minute drive for us from the house. And we found that we can get you know stuff like along the lines of a three-room office for about $300 to $350 a month in an area where you can get really good, cheap DSL. Uh, so we're going to actually open an office when we move permanently to uh, to Arkansas. And uh, because we're going to be able to get more space than we need, I'm going to look at doing something kind of cool when I get there. I don't want to say the whole thing yet, but it's going to involve making some space and some mentoring available to some folks that want to uh, to maybe create their own business. And doing that on kind of a rotational basis, so you don't move in there forever, it's going to be kind of like... Come in, get yourself up and running, and learn from some folks that know what they're doing. Contribute to what's going on and be part of what we're doing. And then after maybe six months to a year and you start to get something going, kind of move you out the door. We're going to do that with local people in the area. I think that's a real good way to make a contribution to the community that I'll be moving to. So that's kind of our plan. Now, all plans never survive contact with the enemy. Some of those things may get altered. Part of that plan may have to be a little bit deferred. But basically, our plan is to get a uh, office when we move there one way or another because we have to to be able to run our business. I also think that it's going to be better for myself and Dorothy as a whole when she's not going to work every day to have separation between the business and the home. Uh, so that's our plan. Now, for you... I'm going to tell you, satellite's probably the best option you have if you can't get anything else. And that's that's sad to put it that way, but it's, it's satellite is the last choice. And when it's the last choice, it is the best option. I don't have another uh, suggestion for you. I would look at if there is any type of WiMAX solution. Clear's rolling out in a lot of places, uh, but they seem to be hitting the big cities uh, where they're becoming an alternative to versus a uh, an option that doesn't exist. I think that's highly... Highly a mistake by a lot of these companies that are rolling out, again, what they call Motorola Canopy, WiMAX-type solutions, uh, anything in there. If I were running companies like that, I would specifically hit the areas of the United States that don't have DSL as soft targets. Those people are screaming for it. And when you can throw them a 6-meg connection for 50 bucks, oh, my God, the business you could do. It would take more effort to build those networks out, but you would have a monopoly without trying to have a monopoly. So I, I don't know why. Uh, they're not taking that approach. That's the best answer I can give you on that. Let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, Jack, this is Joey. Just uh, got your email requesting people to call in with questions, and I'll go through today's show. You talk about the cost of the war um, as far as troop salaries. Uh, could you elaborate on if troops get paid any more or less money when they're overseas and how all that stuff works? I don't know, and I'm kind of curious. I've heard that you know, maybe they get a bonus when they're overseas or something. I don't know. Let me know. Thanks. Well, that's an interesting question, and there is something called hazardous duty pay. It is not for being stationed overseas, but if you were stationed, I would believe, anywhere in Iraq or Afghanistan right now, that would be considered a combat zone and you would be entitled to it. Uh, whether you were a, an infantryman or a cook, I don't think that matters uh, if you're in a, what's considered a combat zone. So if you're hanging out in Germany drinking beer with the German locals and uh, doing stuff like that, no extra money. If you are in Afghanistan or Iraq, Yep, they pay you a bonus. They pay you a great big bonus. It's about, I think, last time I checked the number, $150 a month. Um, and if we look at that compared to what the least paid soldier makes day-to-day, -day, it's it's largely insignificant. A uh, An E-1 in the Army, a private, uh, I guess a private in the Marine Corps, an airman uh, or a seaman in the, in the Navy, the E-1, the entry-level position, Pays right now, but somewhere between fourteen and fifteen hundred bucks. It's right in that neighborhood uh, a month as a, as a standard salary. To give you an idea um, what it was like in 1990 when I was a uh, a private. We made right at six hundred dollars. Five, it was five hundred and ninety-six dollars a month was the amount of money a private made when I joined the army. So it's about tripled since then. Uh, not quite tripled, but pretty daggone close. And I still think those guys are underpaid for what they do. But what you need to know about the military is whether you are a cook, a, a, a TAMS clerk, uh, a computer person, an electrician, uh, or an infantryman, uh, or you know a Special Forces Airborne Troop, no matter what you are, uh, you're paid based on your rank and your tenure. 
which means how long you've been in. So two guys might both be in E4, let's say a corporal in the Army uh, or a corporal in the Marine Corps or a specialist in the Army, depending on your, uh, your you know, an Army, you could, have a, you could be a specialist or a corporal, depending on your position. They're going to get paid exactly the same if they've both been in for four years, but a corporal that's been in for three years of total service will make less than, let's say, a corporal uh, that's been in for six years. Uh, so there is some tenure raises as well, but the hazard duty portion of what they get paid um, is is a very small part. That has not gone up as much as as the pay. It hasn't made commensurate leaps. When I was on uh, when I was in active duty and I was getting what they you know getting hazard duty pay, basically called something else. It was the same amount of money as a hazard duty pay, and it's called jump pay uh, for jumping out of planes. And as long as you were jumping, you got that. It was about I think ninety bucks back then. So I was making 600 and hazard duty pay was 90. Now these entry level guys are making 14, 1500 and hazard duty pays 100 and a half. So it's it's not a significant portion of their cost. My understanding is somebody please correct me if I'm wrong about this. The only place where you qualify for multiple special pays, right? So in the army if you're jumping and in a combat zone, you don't get jump pay and hazard duty pay. You get whichever one's greater and they're the same. So pick one and be happy about it. The only place you do is in the Navy. In the Navy, you actually get sea pay. If you're at sea, you're paid a little bit more while you're at sea. They also have nuke pay. So if you're serving in a nuclear environment, you get nuclear pay. My understanding, at least this is what a Navy recruiter told me when I was 17 years old and tried to get me to join the Navy over the Army was, if I was on a nuclear submarine, I would get sea pay, sub pay, and nuke pay. I, I don't know if that's true. Love to know it. Whatever we're paying these guys, I don't think it's enough for the, what they do even for the guys that aren't out there trading bullets with people on a daily basis. Being a soldier is a lot harder than I think most people realize. So there's kind of my, my long answer with a little more than you asked for, but I thought it was a good opportunity to let people know exactly how much these guys are getting paid to go out there and get shot at. Again, private in the Army, um, $1,400 a month. Let me ask you, what do you make working at uh, Walmart 40 hours a week? And you tell me if they don't deserve at least that extra $150 bucks while they're there. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Lane in Virginia. I'm a relatively new listener, and I have a question for you. I have a spring on my property that's about three to four feet wide in most places. But can you tell me some advantages of having this water source and uh, perhaps give me some ideas of how to make good use of it? Also... On top of that, um, I was wondering if it's worth the effort to construct a spring house for an alternate refrigeration option. Thanks. Oh, well, I mean, you just gave yourself a great idea there. Let's. I, I took this question because I think there's two technologies I can talk about today that will help everybody. And then I'll just tell you my thoughts on having water on your property in any form at, at the end. Uh, let's first talk about what was mentioned there, spring house. Spring house is... Uh, One of the few methods of actual refrigeration that ever existed before there was electricity. And uh, other than maybe an ice house or a river house, and, and people even built homes uh, with using basically a spring house room, or even if it was a big enough spring, maybe most of the house uh, would be cooled somewhat using spring house technology. And the smaller the house, the more effect you're going to get because the less air you have to cool. Basically, to do this, all you do is build a structure over the spring. And that constant uh, flow of that cool water coming in the bottom there uh, creates a cool airflow. And you actually get quite a bit of refrigeration depending on the temperature of the water out of the spring. Uh, the more insulation you provide, the greater the effect. Uh, the more you can keep the hot out and the cold in, the better you can do. So do I think you should do it? Um, if you'll use it, hell yeah. Um, if you'll plan on using it, if you need it because other systems fail, hell yeah. I mean, if I had a spring on my place, I would definitely, definitely look at uh, at least creating some kind of, of a cool space using that. Um, there's a lot of advantages there, down to something as simple as the power's out for a while during the summertime, and, you know, you can put some food in there and, and keep it from spoiling. Uh, but I, I'll tell you what, to me, it would be a great place to age meat as well. Uh, because if, if you're going to be a if you're a hunter, like, I used to hunt deer, Uh, I would I was much happier when the weather was cool during uh, during deer season when I got a deer because if it was cool weather I could just you know hang the deer down in our cellar uh, and skin it and let that deer hang for about four or five days before I would go ahead and cut it up and 
and I just let the whole thing hang like a you know like a big hunk of beef, and that allows some some lactic acid uh, breakdown in the muscle, makes it more tender. So if you had a big enough spring house, even if you had to quarter a deer, uh, it would be a great place to age meat. So that's another advantage. Uh, where if you know your early bow season, if you take a deer, it's 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 not as uh, It's not as optimum to do that. We had an old refrigerator that we would, you know, break down and use to do uh, if it was too warm to let the meat hang. Because you definitely want to age your meat a little bit before you cut it up. You just get a better result. So there's a couple things I can think of there. I mean, if you have a large supply of uh, garden stuff or anything that needs to be kept cold uh, or cool, you'll actually get a lot better storage environment in a spring house than a refrigerator. You get a lot less limp and, 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 and worn out stuff. So... Yeah, man, consider that. Now, the other thing is, you know, the big thing with water on property is having it as a source for drinking or irrigation or, or whatever uh, or being able to create a reserve with it while it's abundant because sometimes springs have higher flows at different times of the year. So the big issue with that generally is getting the water from the spring to someplace else. And the best place to, to move water to is the highest point on your property and seldom is a spring at the highest point on your property. The issue, of course, is how do you get the water to move up a hill uh, without putting any energy out? And most people would say, well, you can't. Uh, you need an electric pump. And if you don't have electricity run down there, that can be expensive. And then the electricity itself can be uh, expensive. Well, there's a technology I want to tell folks about. We've talked about it before, but only briefly. And it's called a hydraulic ram pump. And you can buy one on Amazon for about $800, or you can go out and get some parts and put one together for, I think, around $50. bucks. i will put a couple links in today's show notes so you can learn more about them, including some videos of people that have built their own that are actually running. And what a hydraulic ram pump actually does is as long as you can create any drop or pressure in the water, it can be done in a stream and using the stream's water pressure. It can be done with a spring if you create an overflow and have the water dropping at all. Anything that will create a small amount of pressure basically fills the pump to a point where it drops down and, re and moves. And the water pressure itself creates a pumping action. And a very small amount of drop can create a large amount of lift. And it's not a huge amount of water, but if you put something like a storage tank up on a high part of the property and it runs night and day, day and night, and maybe the only way it gets cut off is with a float valve when your storage tank is filled up, you can constantly be moving water from your spring to a storage tank. And once it's up on a higher piece of land, now gravity can do the work moving it back down. So that's another option. Now, here's what I think as far as the advantages of having a spring on your property. Same thing I'd say if it was a stream or a lake or a pond. Water is life. So I, I, I would highly value any water on a property. I have a seasonal stream on my property in Arkansas. It doesn't last year-round, and I still see it as an advantage because at least it's there during about nine months out of the year. In the driest part of the summer, it kind of goes away. And it is spring-fed. Basically, those springs just stop flowing up at that high elevation during the drier parts of the year. And as everything kind of rebuilds itself, that stream fills back up and starts running. And our plan is to go down there and carve out kind of a reserve tank down there That's deep down, but we have some ways that we can use that water that really a hydraulic ram pump is not really the way we'll, uh, we'll, we'll use that water there. But I don't care what it is, water on your property is a tremendous, tremendous asset. So there's some ideas. Let's go ahead and uh, take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Vince from Colorado. Just had a quick comment for you. Um, I was walking through the neighborhood, my subdivision with my fiance the other night, and I noticed how all of the people put the stickers on the back of their vehicles with the mom, dad, a couple of kids, maybe two dogs and a cat or so, but I made a comment to my fiance that that might be a bad idea for any home intruders or bad guys that are coming at you. They already have a head count of maybe who's in the house and the family or the potential threat of a dog, so just a quick comment for you, something for the listeners. Um, might not be a good idea if the bad guys are coming for you and might have a head count on who's in the house. Love the show, Jack, and take care. Keep up the good work. Well, that's interesting, and I have to agree. I think advertising, you know, your inventory of humans in your house is, is a bit of a risk, and it's not something I would be comfortable doing. First of all, I've always thought they're kind of hokey and kind of goofy, and I... 
I've always felt that way about the same same way about the crap. Like you know, my kid is an honor student at. In fact, I see some humor in this, so hopefully no one will take any of this the wrong way. But um, like I remember one time I saw this uh, lady and she was driving this big old truck and she had a uh, you know it just looked like a farm truck. It looked like something that they just been beat for years. And she had a bumper sticker, and hers said, "My kid beat up your honor student." And I thought that was in poor taste, but it was also funny. Uh, but let's be serious a second. I mean, yeah, saying, "Hey, look, uh, we have two kids, a boy and a girl, in our home, and mom and dad is is kind of an inventory advertisement." I think some people go a little bit extreme with offsec, like you know, they block their license plate out if there's a picture of them somewhere, but then they drive down the road and eighty-seven thousand people see their license plate, and, and I and you know, I just I I don't get that, but. The the concept of having that on your car, I think, is a risk, and I don't get it. I I, I just don't. Now, let's let's talk about how it can be turned around, because my entrepreneurial mind always is going. And what if you had stickers? What if somebody out there made stickers like that? And and, and Dad had, like, a freaking Beretta shotgun, and, uh, you know, Mom had, like, a a forty-four revolver, and the kids had, like, you know, 22s pointing out... (laughs) So that it would basically say, this family's armed, you better stay away. Uh, and then, this is the true story. I, this is the one I really don't want anybody to take the wrong way. I was driving uh, on Loop 12 in Dallas the other day, heading up toward Dallas from the south side here where I live. And this guy was in a truck. And he was clearly a Latino gentleman. He was probably uh, a Mexican. And I'm not saying anything bad about him. I'm just saying he had these stickers. And they had to have like 12 kids. And I think that that actually might deter uh, anybody from breaking in the house. They looked on the car and it looks like an army regiment of the stickers, you know. Or maybe when you make the dog stickers instead of a little cute puppy, they should be just like, you know, a big fang ridden German Shepherd or something. But now, seriously, uh, on your note there, I, I, I think you're right. I think that. That that's just a little bit of a mistake. I agree with you on that one. And if you have those stickers on your car, you might want to think about that. That you are advertising that. And I don't know, maybe some entrepreneur out there wants to make some that uh, show that the family is armed. I think that's really a joke, though, folks. I don't know if anybody would want to put those on their car. Um, but you know, the uh, the army uh, tactic of having a, a, a platoon on your window that actually might be a deterrent. Uh, but there's your humor for Friday. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Cody from Oregon. I just thought I'd bring to your attention wood gas pyrolysis. It's a great alternative energy source. I think you guys would have a great time checking it out. So take it easy. Bye. Well, you know, that's a, a technology we haven't really ever talked about much here on the show because it's something I've never actually put my hands on and done. But... When, when I got the call, I thought, this is another good technology just to bring to the attention of the audience because a lot of folks might have never even heard of this and have no idea that it's even possible. Um, the one time I saw a real good explanation on television of how to do this was on the uh, kind of the, the, the documentary reality TV mix that was called The Colony where they took all those guys about a year ago and they set them in a, a warehouse in L.A. in a scenario where a pandemic had wiped out the whole city and they had to survive with everything that was left in this warehouse. And the way they ran a, a, a generator actually was through wood gas. And here's how this works, a basic way that this works. You take a big container... Uh, and inside another container, you, you, you fill the second container with wood, and then you put wood in the first container. And then the second container is kind of sealed with a, with a, with a gas-off valve uh, and a pipe that takes the, the gas somewhere. You burn the, the material in the first container, and it doesn't have to be wood, but generally it would be wood. And the wood in the second container obviously can't combust. It can't burn because it's in an oxygen-deprived environment. And basically, this is the same way that you make charcoal. Well, after you do this for long enough, the wood that's in the second container, the internal container that's being heated by the first container, begins to gas off. It, it, the, the, the wood itself produces a combustible gas. And then that gas can be piped anywhere and pushed into, uh, and most engines that are designed to run on gasoline can be rigged up, and this gas can be pushed in through uh, their intake, and it can be used to run an engine on something, anything that's carbureted, especially like 
a generator. So basically, you can take a generator designed to run gasoline, and with a little specialized knowledge and some materials, you can make a generator run on wood gas. And for the people, I've been asked a lot of times about making your own ethanol, basically creating a still, and if the shit hits the fan and the world is ended as we know it, and you have no other way to make electricity, that alcohol would be a good fuel, and you convert a generator to run on, on alcohol, and hey, now I can make electricity with alcohol. And I've always said that's a... That's not really a good idea. I think on an industrial level, we'll get there. There's a lot of things that can be fermented that are very, uh, that if you do it in a large scale, that are basically waste products. And uh, we, can, we can go a long way with doing that uh, with increases in technology. But if you wanted to grow enough corn to make enough corn alcohol to generate enough alcohol to burn to create a kilowatt of electricity in that type of an environment the uh, the whiskey the, the corn whiskey the moonshine is going to be worth more as alcohol than it is as being turned into electricity that it's a net energy loss like you wouldn't believe but there's plenty of wood out there including tons of scrap wood laying around and in an end of the world scenario I can see fences being busted up and you know the cedar fences all over America being used to create wood gas um, and, of course, it can be done from uh, any any wood-based material. Some are better than others. But it's worth checking out. I'll put a couple links in the show notes to you, for you guys today to check it out. But it is interesting. It is not really a good alternative fuel sur- source if you want to deal with, as far as I'm concerned, being more environmentally friendly. Because I, I think people that, that you know overplay burning wood as an environmental solution need to look back at history and how bad the freaking environment was when everybody was burning trees, uh, when there were a lot less people on the on the planet. Now, we can burn it more efficiently today, we can burn it cleaner, and we can get more out of it, but it's still not like the holy grail of alternative energy. As a people, and as putting in systems that will actually sustain us, we need to be looking at hydro, hydro and, and, and different types of hydro, like waveform hydro, um, solar and wind and geothermal. Those are the places that we need to be really looking. Wood can play a role, but only a specialized role. Um, but good stuff, interesting technology, definitely worth knowing about. Good skill to have, at least the mental skill set of knowing kind of how it fits together. If you ever ended up in some kind of a situation where it was necessary, let's go ahead and take another question. Jack, it's Shannon from uh, up north in California. Uh, a few times on the show now, I've heard you and your guests say something sort of in passing. Uh, I'm not really worried about inflation. I'm worried about deflation. Or I'm concerned deflation might be a possibility, stuff like that. Um, But I don't think I've ever heard that explained, or maybe I didn't get it. Sometimes it takes me a few times to get the economic stuff, but it is so worth it to understand. So do you think you could explain, uh, you know, for, for... the slow folks like me, how it is that in a situation where we're just printing money like newspapers, that that it will become more valuable instead of less valuable, because I can't figure that one out. Um, Since I started listening to the show, I've changed my life around, and I got my wife on board, and we are now 25% of the way through our consumer credit debt. And, my gosh, uh, I can't think of anything that I could buy with that money that would make me feel so good. So, uh, thanks, and I'll call you when I get another 75%. Bye. You know, that's an excellent question, and it's something I should have definitely covered better by now and explained to people the, the danger of deflation which is the other side of the match, so to speak, when you're running a society with a fiat currency. Uh, We often focus on inflation and prices going up, and here's the thing about inflation. If wages go up commensurate with inflation, in other words, if... Uh, if without promotion, without anything, with just kind of cost of living stuff and maybe taking a new job once in a while, you increase your salary by an average of 2 to 4%, and inflation is an average of 2 to 4%. Ten years from now, even though everything costs more, it doesn't really affect you very much because you have commensurate income increase with inflation. And the entire United States economy and most organized economies around the world today bet on, on doing just that. 
a slow, steady, controlled inflation. That's how they make this stuff work. And it does a lot of things in the mind of the business person, the big, the corporate giant, and the government to make society better for them because it forces people to invest and risk their money. You can't just put your money under a mattress in an inflationary society. You have to have a 401k or a mutual fund or what have you. You have to try to beat inflation to keep your money from being devalued. That keeps an awful lot of money that's not just in savings, because savings isn't good for the economy uh, in, in the business sense. And in some ways it's not. There's some truth there. I think it's good for you, but if everybody saves everything that they don't spend in a just a plain old savings type of environment... It doesn't provide a lot of fuel for, for business growth. When people invest in a stock, the money that, that seeds the stock is used to actually build the company, to grow business. So the government wants you and large corporations want you investing. Because if everybody invests a little, it's billions and trillions of dollars invested, and that fuels progress and growth in business. I'm not saying it's a perfect system. I'm saying this is the way it's designed. This is the intent of the designer of the system. This is the intent. When the person says the Fed's okay, all this crap is good, this is the theory. Now, let's say inflation starts to run away from us. Prices start to go up too fast. Unless we're in a critical situation, a runaway, a Weimar Republic, the end of the line, so to speak, along the way, inflation's pretty easy to control. I just start increasing interest rates, so money's more expensive to borrow, so that curtails spending. So inflation can be capped fairly easily simply by raising interest rates. All I have to do to slow down spending is make money more expensive. It's, it's as simple as that. And it doesn't always work, but it works more often than it does not. Now, the alternative, deflation. As prices start to drop, it's not so much a problem for you that the price of a can of Campbell's soup goes down, but it is a problem for you that the value of your house goes down, the value of the car that you're holding that you have a loan on goes down. See, deflation really hurts people that are in debt. See, you always heard people say, ah, inflation rewards people in debt, right? And there's a little bit of truth to that. You know, if it's going to inflate, why not just have a mortgage? Why not just have debt? Because as it inflates, the, the cost of your debt decreases. Meaning if I owe $100,000 on my house today and it's worth $100,000 a day, and in 10 years I still owe ninety because of the terms of my mortgage, but my house is now worth $200,000, I'm way ahead. I beat the system with inflation. Now, think about the converse now, right? Think about the, the, the reverse here. When we, uh, we, we take something like that that we're in debt for on a long-term debt and we devalue the underlying asset beyond depreciation, right? Because if you have a car, obviously it depreciates. But beyond depreciation, which is something you should factor into your, your lending terms if you're borrowing money anyway, um, now all of a sudden I've been paying on my house for 10 years, I owe $90,000, and my house is worth $50,000. Now, I I mean, when I bought the house, it was I paid what it was worth, and this is how many people are in that situation right now. And if there's deflation, of course, then what happens to uh, corporate profits? They go down. So they go down, so stocks start to drop. So when stock prices drop and investors start to pull out, they drop more. So what do companies do? They cut costs. What's the easiest thing to do first? Cut. The, if you're a big company with 10,000 people, you cut the 10% of your workload, 1,000 people, salary benefits, everything it costs to employ them, you cut the bottom end, you cut the fat. And now the company's a little bit more profitable. But then all those people don't have a job, so they stop spending money, and you start a deflationary spiral. As business begins to contract. Now, if raising interest rates slows down inflation, what creates it? Lowering interest rates, right? All the way till when? How high can you raise interest rates? You could raise it to any number you want. I mean, there's a theoretical limit, but in, in I mean, in, honestly, you could charge a hundred percent. On a deflation problem, though, if you're the Federal Reserve and you're trying to control it, what do you do after you get to zero? Nothing. Because you can't do a negative interest rate. 
Because if you did a negative 1% interest rate, I would want a gazillion dollars from you right now. Please give it to me. I will pay you. Oh, wait, you owe me 1% on a gazillion dollars. I'll just take my interest. Goodbye now. Right? So you can't control deflation once you get to zero. Pretty much we're sitting there right now. So now we're in this stagnated economy where we can't get it going again. Everybody right now that understands this is betting on, hoping for, praying for, begging for inflation. Well, I thought inflation was bad. Inflation's bad when it's 18%. The way our economies run, inflation is good at 2%. It keeps everything progressing forward and it keeps everybody invested. It keeps money flowing. The problem is, what do we do now? If we lived in a real world with a real currency that actually was backed by something like gold, and I'm not saying it just has to be just gold, but if there was some backing, if there was some cap on the production of currency, these problems would sort themselves out. We would have shortages, we would have inflation, we would have deflation, but they would be short-term bumps. And eventually everything sorts itself out because the free market fixes stupid fast. But in a fiat system, where we've now we've made all this freaking money, We've printed it out, we're deeply in debt, and now nobody has money to spend, and the people that do have it don't want to spend it, and the banks don't want to loan it because they can't, because they're holding toxic investments. Folks, I'm telling you, we're in for a decade of misery. I know I've talked about the false recovery, but understand it's false. And we've either had it already, and I was wrong about how good it would be, or it'll come, but this thing is, you know, my... Prediction for the false recovery was bet, betting on inflation. That we would get an inflationary period, a bubble that they would create with a massive influx of capital. Basically, the government dumped all this money in, and it didn't happen. And here's part of the problem. Do you know that a lot of the stimulus money that they've spent so far, almost half of it, has been spent on things like signs to say that they're spending it? Like this construction project supported with the stimulus We don't need a sign to tell us that. Take that freaking sign money and put it into more projects if you're going to do that. And again, we're not building things that are going to last. At least in the Great Depression, we built stuff like the Hoover Dam instead of tunnels for turtles. But this is why deflation is a much bigger problem. I'll put a link to a quick little article that will pretty much tell you the same thing. Uh, maybe it'll be more concrete if you uh, if you read it. But you have to understand that the, the, the hyperinflation is not the only danger to the economy. Stagnating deflation is not only a danger, but in some ways worse. Unless, here it is, buddy, here it is, unless you're a saver. If you're a saver, and you live a debt-free lifestyle, and you have any stability in your income, the best thing in the world that can happen for you is deflation. Because you go out and you buy things for cash on the barrel cheap at a discount while the deflationary period lasts. If it lasts 10 years, you don't care. Why? Because you're not buying it to sell it. You're a saver. Right? You're not buying the house so you can sell it in five years. You're buying the house to make a living out of it. You're buying the house to turn it into a homestead. You don't care if the price keeps going down. You care, did I buy it for less than I would have two years ago? Was I able to pay for it for cash? Or was I able to finance a house in five years like a car? Instead of 30 years, where we, you know, the word mortgage means mort, mortality, gauge, grip. Morph, mortgage is to be under the grip of death. It's the root of the two words. Gauge is from Old English, meaning to grip. Mort, mortality. There you go. So there's your deflation answer. I'm sorry that it sucks that way, but it does. But the good news again, if you're still employed, if you're making any amount of money, even if your wages are decreased, your money goes further. We're not quite there yet. See, we're in this weird deflation period right now where the cost of living hasn't really gone down, but the cost of things like housing has. And that's in some ways the worst because if you're stuck in the house, you haven't gotten any kind of a break. The people that are winners right now are the people that were renting, bought well under market value and bought smart, are equity heavy in their homes. Those are the winners right now. Large cash reserves are winners right now. Not highly leveraged into just diversified by holding mutual funds. Sound familiar? Now here's the thing. 
if you save lots of money, if you don't put a lot of your money at risk, if you have things in reserve uh, to back up your investments like gold, if you have food, if you have all the stuff that would make you better off right now, you're still better off during inflation, aren't you? See, that's the white reason I teach this type of a philosophy. It's the only way to win on both ends. Now, the person betting on fl inflation will make more money than you, okay, when there's inflation. The person that's bet on deflation will make more money than you. But the person that goes to the, the horse track and bets on you know a trifecta, 5-4-1 in the horse lineup, will make more money than you when the horse has come across in that order. But you'll be better off than, than the, the guy betting at the horse track because he's going to lose more than he's going to win. And that's what I'm saying about life. We don't bet on inflation or deflation. We understand the needs that we have and we fill them. And then we take the surplus and we figure out the safest and most reliable ways to invest it under the current circumstances. That's the way I suggest you live, and that's how you protect yourself from both edges of this sword, because the deflationary sword is a really nasty one, and you'll realize something. It's something your financial advisor probably has never spoken to you about. They always speak from the standpoint of inflation as a constant. Well, check out, you know, 1930s and part of the 1970s, and, well, right now. Why was I wrong about gas going up to some crazy price and never coming down below three ever again? Deflation, folks. Uh, it is the other edge of the sword. Let's take uh, one more call and we'll wrap up for today. Hi, um, I'm calling from Florida. We um, have just recently purchased, as of today, uh, 23 acres about an hour away from the city. Uh, we're hoping to sell our home rather quickly, but really want to homestead the 23 acres. And we're wondering if you could give us some advice on where to get started. Um, it's raw land. We have a water source. And we're going to have to start off, obviously, with fencing it and putting a home on it. But after that, where should we start? Thanks. Well, first of all, it always amazes me how calls come in back-to-back that -back play off each other so well. What did I just say? Deflation rewards savers. I'm going to go out on a limb here uh, after I say congratulations on the purchase of 23 acres of uh, land in Florida. That is awesome. An hour away from the city, that's awesome. I don't know what city, but I don't care where. That's, that's just absolutely awesome. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say five years ago, even if you had the same amount of money you do now, that would have probably been really, really hard, if not impossible, for you to do. You might have been buying 10 acres or 8 or 13, but you probably wouldn't have been buying 23 in a real estate market like Florida, even in a rural area, with the same resources you do now. But because it's deflated and because you guys are obviously kicking ass and living a smart lifestyle, you had an opportunity right now to do something that probably five years ago you couldn't. Um, but you probably had a pretty good life for the last five years as well, so that's cool. Hopefully you'll get that house sold. You're not underwater with it. I bet you're not. Sound too smart to me uh, for you guys to be underwater with that house. I bet you didn't bet on inflation. You built your life based on what you wanted. So good for you. See how it works out, folks. And I want you guys to hear this call because, hey, man, isn't it great that one of our listeners just got 23 acres as of yesterday? That's badass. All right, now, what to do. First of all, you mentioned putting a home on it and uh, fencing it. I'm going to tell you one thing to do right away to conserve your resources. Don't try to fence the whole damn thing straight away unless you have a reason for it or you have like a blue sky budget. Uh, to me, um, you, you know, it's going to be, it's going to take you years to get close to fully utilizing all 23 acres, especially in a manner in which it needs to be fenced. Um, I don't know what you're going to do with the property, what you're looking to do, but 23 acres for one family is, you know, without some real investment in some farm equipment or something like that, is going to be difficult for you to, uh, to fully utilize. Um, some of the things that I, I could tell you is, one, what you may want to do is as soon as you sell that house, you might want to buy some beat-up old mobile home and just throw it on there while you build your house. That'll get you on the land property uh, faster and working it faster, and it'll make you really value the home when it's done so much more because you've gone from living in some kind of a travel trailer or a mobile home to your new dream house. And it also might allow you to act as your own general contractor to a degree. And right now, the construction market in Florida is absolute to shit. So since that's the case, you should be able to get contractors 
killing themselves bidding against each other for your business. And when you do, and you take all the bids in, let me give you a piece of advice. Take the lowest bid and throw it out. Look at your two next lowest bids and judge the quality of what you expect to get out of there. Take at least five bids on every project you do. Take your two lowest and whoever looks like they're going to do the best job and the best quality and has the best references, pick that one even if it's the one that's a little bit more. You do not want the lowest bid. You should be able to get very competitive bids right now. The lowest bid is generally the person that, that is uh, dropped their drawers, as we used to say in sales. And what happens on a construction environment with labor, when someone comes in too low, what generally happens is they've made a mistake, they don't realize it, they end up underwater in the job before it's finished, and then you stop being a valuable customer, and you become an expensive pain in the ass, and then you get poor quality. So, so there you go on, on the like your first steps you already wanted, but you want to know, what do I do with this property? I have to say, a lot of it depends on what do you want. I have, you know, it, it's up to you. I have to say, though, that I have been longing to see somebody really blow it out with a permaculture food forest in this country. The, 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 I'm tired of just watching the Brits and all these people in the tropics in New Zealand and Australia put in these two, three-acre gorgeous food forests, and, and, and the only thing that we seem to be doing here is little backyard experiments. And I'd love to see you guys take maybe two or three acres of that, swale it, uh, put some dams and ponds on it, and really blow it out as a permaculture project and do it slowly. Um, I think that putting water in is, I don't know what your soil's like, so how realistic that is, but ponds and swaling are definitely something I would look at doing. I, it's hard for me to tell you what I would do first because I don't know what you want. I put you on the air more because I think it's cool that you've done this. But I think what, here's what you need to do. You need to sit down, you and your husband, and if you guys have kids, your kids, and you need to sit down and make a list. If I sent you $20 million and said, do whatever you want to with your land, what would you do with your land? Just go nuts. Just make a, a, a wish list. All right. Then on that list, you're going to have some things that are ridiculous. Build a, build a mansion, right, for, for $5 million. Okay, scratch it off. At least it got you thinking in the right direction, right? So now it's build the type of house you can actually afford. And then you're going to have all other kinds of things on that list. Go through them, and first thing you do is take the most expensive and put them in one list, and you put the easiest things to do financially in another list. Then take your two lists and begin to prioritize them. You know, just rate them on a, a grouping of one to five stars. Is this a, a one or a five? The five being the best. Then reorder your list. Take all your five stars and then prioritize those. And a plan will start to come together for you. Because this is going to be so much more about what you want in your life than what I would do with the land if it was mine. Um, with that kind of land, man, I would be growing a food forest, and I would be planting it wooded, and I would be making it into my own little game preserve with as many ponds and streams, and, and I'd only probably have two or three acres of it by the time it was all said and done that was in a typical, you know, cultivated uh, outbuildings and all that kind of stuff, and most of it would end up being wooded with it divided between woods that were designed for the production of food and woods that were designed for uh, sheltering wildlife. And that's what I would do. And I'd be out in my own, you know, I'd probably turn an acre and a half to two acres at least if the, the soil's right into a big, huge pond. Uh, and I'd probably have little ponds scattered throughout the damn place. And that would be my, and I would, you know, make that list and have to prioritize based on, you know, resources and money. And that's what I would do, you know. And I would have, you know, two to three acres that would be the homestead portion with, you know, any livestock or, or whatever on it. Um, and, and that's what I would want. But is the, if you want more of a 20-acre a co-op farm, I mean, you got to build it the way you want it. But what's awesome is you did it. And I'm so freaking proud when I hear members of my audience living their dreams like that, folks. And that's why I wanted to end today's show on this call. And guess what? We're at the end of the show, and it was the last call. It just it came in this order. You guys always do this, so thank you for that. But I'm sorry I can't be more specific to what to do with your property. If you can come up with a couple ideas and call me back, send me an email and let me know, because I'll do a follow-up to this one specifically. I'll jump you to the head of the line. Send me an email. Let me know that you've called in and what time you called in. I'll pull your call out for the next call-in show and say, we've kind of thought about it now. And these are some of the things that we would want to do, help us prioritize. Maybe I can help you do that, but I can't go with a blank slate. 
All I can tell you is what I would do and tell you, you, you obviously are a dreamer because you've made a dream come true. Keep working on that dream. And that's for everybody out there, folks. It doesn't have to be the way they tell you it does. There is another option. There is a better way. Whether it's 23 acres in rural Florida, uh, a half an acre in an urban environment because that's where you want to be, whether it's the middle of the mountains in Idaho, whether it's the plains of Texas, whether it's the mountains of the Smokies in Tennessee and Arkansas and all that good stuff, If it's Appalachia, wherever it is that you call home, make sure it's a place that you want to call home. And once you have your home, start working on turning that home to a homestead. And preparedness will take care of itself in that environment. Remember, they tell you that inflation it punishes savers. I'll tell you it doesn't. And deflation certainly rewards it. Sooner or later we have those periods. It's whether or not you have the opportunity to take advantage of it. Keep living smart. Keep living the right way. And keep on looking for that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for the